Osiris. This is Beautiful Garbage, an Osiris Media podcast exploring how America unleashed punk rock on the world. I'm Kevin Hogan. We will be tracing the development of punk rock from American garages and bars to England in the mid to late 70s and back, looking at the important figures in their work. Today, in episode three, Bad Girls and Sick Boys, we will travel into New York's underbelly where a dive bar on the Bowery became the midwife for punk rock. The exodus from New York that had been occurring since the late 50s had a profound effect on the future of rock music. As people moved to the suburbs for a safe, quiet life, the city began to fall into economic hard times. An eroded tax base, decaying inner cities, New York City may just be the first in a series of municipalities faced with economic crisis. This is the dawn of suburbia. We pushed people out to the suburbs and industry sold us on this American dream. In the surroundings of, you know, suburban comfort, the children were just looking for some life. Patti Smith, Elda Gentili, and Deborah Harry all looked to New York as a place to escape the safe, quiet lives their parents created. One where being a woman and an artist were celebrated. For me, it was fantastic because there was no real culture. So New York City was like, a mecca for culture. New York City is the most amazing, creative inspiration. There is so much going on there. There is so much to draw from in New York. And, and it's an amazing thing because it also draws people who are creative to it. It was a, an escape route for me. And uh, I always knew that I was not cut out for suburbia and I really had no interest in um, that kind of life. It was a gritty city, there was all kinds of life, and you could live very cheaply, and it it seemed just alive uh, with also um, creative energy, because at that time the city was um, economically oppressed, so a lot of young people were coming there because they could live there very cheaply. And, um, and I felt at home there. New York became a mecca for the arts in the early 70s. It was cheap to live there as the city, exasperated by an economy verging on a recession, was a shell of its former self, with large parts of New York nearly abandoned. This meant a lot of cheap property for those like Hilly Crystal, brave enough to take a chance. In New York, the punk scene got off the ground at a then-unknown club on the Lower East Side called CBGB's. Located in the heart of Skid Row at 315 Bowery, the raw and unrestricted environment was perfect for the new bands to try new things. I started CBGB's to do what I thought would be the popular, coming popular music of the country, which was country music. 
So that's why it's, you know, CBGB stands for Country Bluegrass Blues. Soon, I guess it was, it was evident that there weren't enough new, interesting country-type bands in the area to really do a consistent job. CBGB is like, it was like just a, a bumbo on the Bowery, and um, nobody, nobody was playing, but like, we, could, we saw that it could become a scene, like we wanted to develop it, make it something, you know. So we started playing for uh, Hilly and the Dog, and um, eventually got up to like 700 people a night, and you know? then. When we were starting out, uh, there really weren't clubs where bands could play their own material. And uh, poor Hilly wanted to have a bluegrass bar on the, on the Bowery. And uh, well, I guess the road didn't go that way. The road took an, another turn. Hilly's on the Bowery was nothing special, filled with homeless people, drug addicts, and bikers. But it was cheap, and they could have live music. So in 1972, two aspiring promoters named Billy Page and Rusty McKenna approached Crystal about booking bands there. Hilly agreed, but looking to avoid having to pay royalties gave the aspiring promoters two conditions for booking bands. The first, the bands had to play all originals. The second was you load in and out your own gear. And subsequently I put in band after band that were doing their own music and I finally, uh, within a few months into uh, 74, uh, made it a policy that the only way you could play here was to uh, be playing your own music. That first condition, strictly a business one, had the unintended consequence of allowing hundreds of bands a chance to play original music. What they ended up with was music that was a reaction to both disco and album-oriented rock. It's fun to do a slow shingling too. I belong to the blank generation. In the early days, it went on for two or three years, really, before um, it became well-known, you know. And uh, that bar was originally a wino's Hells Angels bar on the Bowery. It was a very funky crowd. A lot of the women who came down were uh, topless dancers in Times Square. At least half the guys were junkies. It was, uh, it was real uh, nice, seedy, real New York kind of. Rock fans had nothing like the power of an MC5 or Stooges, and many young musicians had a yearning to get back to that raw power. You know, CBGB's is the only place where you could walk in and say, I got a band, and Hilly would, and Terry would say, well, we'll give you a night, and you'll be on the bill, and then we'll figure out if you belong in the roster. By 1974, a band called Squeeze were booked to a two-day-a-week residency, and CBGB became a strictly rock and roll club. 
Squeeze became the Revelons, which gave both television's Fred Smith and the Patti Smith group's J.D. Doherty their first taste of playing on the soon-to-be legendary stage. As I was doing the country bluegrass blues and, and, and interposing jazz and rock, um, the group television uh, came around and they spoke to their, their manager, Terry Ork, and they persuaded me to put them in every Sunday. Television was very different when Richard Hell was in the band. Richard had an original idea and a vision of the, them sort of being like, uh, the, I think, the Bowery Boys, which, uh, you know, but the ripped clothing, a lot of that came from just your clothes were ripped. And Richard would staple his cuffs because he didn't have cufflinks, so they'd just be stapled. I mean, some of it was contrived that you'd wear something that was quite ripped on stage, but it, it became like their look. It just looked like you were kind of found in the garbage can, or the dolls had that song, Trash, you know? They're, they would borrow their girlfriend's clothes. That's how their look developed. And so they knew, I think Richard and television knew they didn't want to be glitter glam. That, that wasn't going to be their thing. They wanted to be more macho looking, but they still wanted to look uh, original. As much as this look, that would become the uniform of punk after America invaded England was done out of poverty and necessity. It was also calculated, much like the Velvets, Dolls, or Iggy had curated a look to add another layer to their music and shows. The idea of an image was also used to brilliant effect by the stilettos. I liked her because I liked her from the dolls. And here she was waitressing. And I said, you're not doing much better than me if you're waitressing in this joint, you know. And, and I, she was somebody that I, you know, I wouldn't have minded to go on the trip. I said, so can you sing? She said, yeah, I can sing. So what do you think? Want to start a band? So she said, yeah, call me. I had a, I, you know, everybody, it was kind of incestuous. Everybody was somehow related to everybody else on the scene. Yeah. And I just went to their first show with the stiletto. She was doing this girl trio thing. And I actually, I wound up going to the first event of theirs. And was very taken with Debbie. I thought she was terrific. And that was it. And then I, I became the first non, uh, I a regular member of the band <laughs> after that. Of a band called The Stilettos. The Stilettos, right? yeah, yeah. Sort of girl, campy, cabaret, R&B thing. What The Stilettos were trying to do was in a way be a continuation of the Shangri-Las and the Renettes, but now infuse it with that cabaret thing that was going on in the early 70s as the, as the sort of rock theatre, the, the ridiculous theatre, that also, when that moved along a bit, it became more cabaret. So it was a big cabaret movement. 
the gay scene is happening. You know, so all of these things, again, are all mixing and matching. Employing an almost cabaret feel, Elda Gentili's brainchild included two backup singers, Amanda Jones and Debbie Harry. The stilettos were short-lived, releasing only one 7-inch anti-disco, and soon Harry and her boyfriend, guitarist Chris Stein, had left to form Angel and the Snake. Angel and the Snake lasted less time than the stilettos before morphing into Blondie. Blondie took the tight edge of Angel and combined it with the post-Dolls glam feel of Stiletto to fabulous effect. Blondie was the first band from CBGB's early years to make a mark on pop, punk, disco, and even hip-hop, but it didn't happen overnight. They put in their time, slowly building an audience and then pushing the boundaries of their music while bringing old fans along. the band. Well, first I met Chris at a show, and uh, I gradually met everybody else through uh, playing, actually, just playing shows. At that particular time, there was no money involved. Nobody was, nobody was interested in in us. It was a, a clubhouse, really, very uh, insulated and isolated. And Chris and I both have sort of said, you know, reflecting on that, that it was kind of ideal, you know, to get your shit together and, you know, to have that have that period of of not being exposed. Wow, wow, 
In the beginning, Chris Stein was channeling Johnny Thunder's guitar noise, while Jimmy Destry on keys provided a portent of the coming new wave sound, as Clem Burke on drums and Gary Valentine on bass provided a rock-solid foundation. Without Harry, Blondie would have been a welcome addition to the bands playing CBGB, but with the former Playboy Bunny out front, they were next level. Harry used her sexuality to draw you in and then smacked you with her lyrics. Early songs like A Girl Should Know Better, Ripper to Shreds, and Ex Offender with their underground edge gave way as the band became more refined to songs that incorporated disco, like Heart of Glass, and hip-hop in their crossover hit Rapture. Blondie, and Harry in particular, showed the world you could reach the top and stay true to your vision. She also influenced every female pop star that came after her on some level because of the doors she broke down. Could Madonna have felt like a virgin if Blondie hadn't have sung Ex Offender? I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line. Women should not portray themselves as victims. We were counterculture of the of the period. I guess it was just, you know, the right time, the right place, the right thing, you know. Uh, our guests this evening are a group called the Ramones. First time I saw them was in 1975. It just blew me away. It, it was uh, it was like nothing I'd I'd heard in in, in live in many years. Uh, the, the the problem with um, uh, everything you, you heard on the radio was was either disco or or this stuff that comes out of L.A. The kind of uh, Linda Ronstadt Eagles. Uh, soft rock axis that uh, that after a while just got to be boring and, and Ramones went out there and just uh, and played all these uh, just strictly power chords and their lyrics were wonderfully funny and uh, and I stayed around for uh, for two sets until about three in the morning with this uh, girl who didn't want to uh, who didn't want to stick around for any of it at all. Of all the bands associated with CBGB, the Ramones are the poster child. They were actually brought to Crystal's attention the same night as he was firing television. 
The Ramones came to Hilly Crystal looking for a chance, and he gave it to them, even though he thought they were worse than television. They only had a handful of songs, but they were all originals, so he gave them a Sunday night spot, and they made the most of it, soon becoming the star attraction, playing over 70 times between August and December in 1974 alone. Boys and girls, the Ramones! Now I want to spit some glue. Originally, they were, they were a concept of mine. I knew these kids from Greece. I said, boy, if these guys picked up some instruments, they would be really an interesting band. So I suggested they do that. They show up with original songs. I go, what? These, they had songs. <laughs> and these were the most bizarre, strange songs I've ever heard. Any, anyway, originally, Joey played drums, but he wasn't so hot. We found out he was the best singer. We brought him up front to be the lead singer. We were looking for drummers. We auditioned drummers, they just couldn't get what we were looking for. I had never played drums in my life, but I would sit down and show them what to do. Make a long story short, I ended up with the drummer. That's uh, kind of how I got involved as a musician in the band. Formed in the Forest Hill neighborhood of Queens, they looked out of place in mid-70s New York with their leather jackets and long hair. Their music was out of place also, basically hopped-up versions of the music that filled rock and roll radio in the 50s and 60s. The songs were two minutes and change, three chords, a chorus you could scream along to, kicked off by... One, two, three, four. The subject matter was basic teenage angst and rebellion, while the music was rock and roll in its most stripped-down form. Soon we realized that we were writing songs that were that people thought were a little on the sick side, and that they didn't really look at us as a bubblegum type of band. We were influenced a lot by um, mental illness, things that we see around us. Uh, we couldn't really sing songs about cars and girls because we had no girlfriends or no cars. This was punk at its purest. The beauty in it all was, like the dolls, they were thumbing their noses at the bloat rock that had consumed FM radio in the 70s. They let everyone know from the start in songs like Judy is a Punk Rocker that they were all about one thing, the music. There were no concept albums or intricate arrangements here. There was no overproduced rock show here. What is here is a thread that goes back to the sound of early rock and roll, rockabilly and surf music while at the same time sounding fresh and new in its simplicity. Like in the 60s, uh, everybody was open to listening to new things, and now there's more money in top 40 kind of stuff. And 
it's hurting, you know, it's hurting us, you know, it's hurting like everybody, I guess, except... It's hurting the little kids' ears. Yeah. yeah I can't see how um, kids can grow up on Leaf Garrett and uh, think they're, in, you know, getting well. a fair deal, you know, <laughs> getting a fair shake, you know. The Ramones recorded many iconic songs like Beat on the Brat and are cited by countless musicians as an inspiration. Still, they never made it big. Other CBGB alumni that debuted around this time did make it big, even huge, crossing over to mainstream radio and making 1974 a banner year for rock music, even though no one knew it at the time. Hello, you're live. Hello, yeah, I'm from. Yeah. Yeah, um, what do I know about the group? They're a bunch of f- Ha 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 Patty Smith was a regular at CBGB with her boyfriend, Robert Maplethorpe. She was also frequently seen with Lenny Kay, who would become guitarist in the Patty Smith group. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. And so I had met Lenny Kay, and uh, he was working at a record store. And I said, I, I think that guy Lenny plays guitar. So uh, I went and uh, visited Lenny and, and said, you play guitar, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, want to play with me at St. Mark's, you know, and do some sonic stuff, a couple of songs, and then can you do a car crash? Can you make your guitar sound like a car crash? So he said, sure. And uh, so, you know, we put together 18 minutes and we did our poetry reading. Some people loved it and heralded it as a new thing and other people thought I should be arrested for desecrating the church which is not all that unfamiliar now is it but in any event Lenny and I weathered that weathered all kinds of storms and we're still together Like so many of the bands that graced the stage at CBGB, Patti Smith was more than just a punk rocker. Called the Punk Poet Laureate, Smith was an unlikely candidate to fuel the coming revolution in music. A poet by trade, she, along with Lenny Kay, took the primal beat of garage rock and expanded it to allow her the space to improvise her poetry, which was then incorporated into the songs. After a few months, 
A young lady came in and did her first set as a group, which is Patti Smith. She had been friendly with uh, Tom Berlane, and since Tom, as the leader of television, was enjoying his, um, his gigs at CBGB's, he persuaded her to come in, and, and they played actually for about seven weeks straight. This was in the uh, spring of, late spring of 75, until they were actually signed, the first band that was signed out of here by Clive Davis for, for Arista. And you know what happened with Patty. She did very, very well. There was a mourning in their sound for rock and roll that had died as corporate America took over the music business, making most radio music formulaic and overproduced. Many bands had become more concerned with how to package their music to sell out concerts than building a following that would allow them to grow as artists. CBGB had changed this and is why it is so important. To remember without remembering, to keep continuing, to continue in the face of failure, to keep going, to continue, to cry like river, cry like river, cry like river, cry like river, like river. With television and Blondie becoming the face of the club in late 74 into early 75, it was a coup for the Patti Smith Band. Now with Ivan Kral on guitar and bass, J.D. Doherty on drums, and Richard Soul on piano, to be given a rotating headlining spot with television for a two-show-a-night, four-night-a-week, seven-week residency. It was this gift from Hilly Crystal that really allowed the band to gel and codify their sound. Clive Davies from Arista was looking for the sound of artists like Smith, that would grow and challenge, and signed her to his label Arista during this residency. Her first album, Horses, which opens with the aforementioned Gloria, produced by John K. Allen, has become the starting point for many disaffected voices that wanted their poetry to be heard by a larger audience. Powerful women like Debbie Harry and Patti Smith proved that punk was more than a bunch of uninformed 18 to 22 year olds who could barely write a song or play their instruments. They would be the force that propelled rock forward as punk morphed into new wave and alternative rock. Next episode, the bands at CBGB play musical chairs. While Richard Hell joins forces with the remnants of the doll, a man named Byrne lays the foundation for New Wave, and four mop tops from Queens prepare to invade England. I'm Kevin Hogan, and this is Beautiful Garbage, presented by Osiris Media. For more podcasts that connect you deeply to the music you love, check out OsirisPod.com. Osiris.